This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 5, Patron-Surrogate Relations and the Problem of Control and Autonomy Organized violence through military action has traditionally been a highly hierarchical operation between a principal and an agent. In the Trinitarian conceptualization of civil-military relations, the state delegates the security function to the soldier as its agent. This relationship is hierarchical in nature, granting the agent very little autonomy to maneuver outside political strategic control. Although Western command philosophy today rejects micromanagement, the soldier as the agent is not granted absolute autonomy on the operational and tactical level. Even the Western concept of mission command, that is, the maximum of decentralized execution based on centralized strategic intent, does not fundamentally change that. Control of the agent through the principle remains an inherent feature of military operations, whereby control means the actual coordination of agent action through processes and structures. Through a formal and informal institutionalization process, the agent is tied to the state, to the military as an organization, and most importantly to the social context in which he operates. All these forms of institutionalization reduce agent autonomy and constrain agent behavior by either the state, the military organization, or peers. Surrogate warfare by definition breaks with this tradition because military action is externalized to an executive agent without any Trinitarian ties to the patron. The patron as the principal thereby tries to substitute or supplement the state soldier with an external agent with no or only limited links to the sponsor. A degree of surrogate autonomy is thus intended. Nonetheless, the patron pursuing strategic or operational objectives tries to ensure that the surrogate follows its guidelines and direction. Thus, a degree of patron control is necessary. The consequence is a trade-off between control and autonomy. Patrons seek to maximize control over the surrogate while maintaining a degree of public dissociation. Surrogates, particularly human surrogates, seek to maximize autonomy while ensuring a constant level of support and assistance. What emerges is a zero-sum game of patron control and surrogate autonomy that determines the volatile nature of surrogacy as a principal-agent relationship. Naomi J. Weinberger differentiates surrogates based on different degrees of substitution and consequent degrees of autonomy, ranging from client to proxy to agent. A client is strategically independent from the patron. A proxy is more dependent, but retains a degree of autonomy. And an agent is both strategically and operationally embedded in the patron's military operation. In this book, the term agent is used more generally to describe the surrogate as a delegate acting on behalf of the patron. The externalization of the burden of warfare from the patron to the surrogate establishes a principal-agent relationship whereby the loss of control on one side causes the same discomfort as the loss of autonomy on the other. This chapter will look at autonomy as the freedom from control, realizing, however, that autonomy in surrogate warfare varies depending on the form and category of surrogacy one is looking at. While direct, operational surrogates enjoy very little autonomy, indirect or coincidental. Strategic surrogates are almost free from any control by the patron. 
The coordination and management of surrogate operations against the backdrop of the patron's intent is a highly delicate task that proves to be the most disadvantageous characteristic of this mode of warfare. Trying to reconcile patron intent and surrogate ambitions often generates transaction costs that could potentially constitute a burden of warfare in itself. When the patron is unable to control the surrogate to achieve the patron's intent at least partially, the utility of the externalization of the burden of warfare is slim to none. The Principal Agent Problem with Human Surrogates The inherent problem of surrogate warfare with human surrogates emerges from the principal agent dilemma that occurs as soon as one entity, the agent, is entrusted by the other entity, the principal, to execute functions on its behalf. In particular, the agent may be doing so in his best interest, which which coincidentally might not be in the best interest of the principal. Thus, the principal-agent dilemma arises from a perfect asymmetry in interests and objectives, coupled with the considerable costs for the principal to monitor and control the agent's actions. From this realization stem three inherent problems for the principal, moral hazard, adverse selection, and Madison's dilemma. Dilemma. Moral hazard refers to the fact that the information asymmetry between principal and agent might cause the agent to act ineffectively or unethically and thereby not be in the best interest of the principal. The agreed objective will most likely not be achieved sufficiently, causing the principal to get involved to take on the task itself. Adverse selection is a phenomenon that again refers to the asymmetrical access of information regarding the agent's abilities, skills, and capacity required to fulfill the objective according to the principal's expectations. Owing to adverse selection, the agent is in a position to persuade the principal into delegating the task to the agent despite the latter's not having the capacity or capability to do so. Dilemma describes a situation in which the resources or authority provided to the agent for the purpose of advancing specific interests of the principal are being abused and, in the worst-case scenario, turned against the principal's interests. These three phenomena can be observed in surrogate warfare as well. Patrons suffer from an information asymmetry rendering them, first, unable to adequately assess the surrogate's abilities, and, second, supervise and control surrogate activities on the operational and tactical level. Despite the vetting process, a patron might never have full access to the actual capabilities and intentions of the surrogate, potentially causing a major risk when employing him on an operation. Patrons tend to be under resource constraint when trying to vet the surrogate and are consequently able to accurately assess whether a surrogate is the right partner or not. More often than not, surrogates have abused the resources and authority to act on behalf of the patron to achieve their own objectives, sometimes at the expense of patron interests, as will be discussed below. Thus, a patron has to invest in control and monitoring mechanisms that reduce the risk of surrogates diverting from the patron's agenda. Less autonomy, therefore, means less monitoring and lower agency costs. However, the less autonomy the surrogate has, the more the patron has to invest in using his Trinitarian agents, which in turn increases the burden of warfare for the patron. The principal-agent dilemma that the patrons face in surrogate warfare put patrons into a dilemma that might undermine the whole utility of surrogacy. The reason is that for surrogate warfare to generate positive externalities for the patron, the surrogate needs to retain a sufficient degree of autonomy to actually make any direct relationship between principal and agent plausibly deniable before the domestic, local, and international communities.
At the same time, the patron needs to exercise sufficient control over the surrogate so as to ensure that objectives are achieved with as little negative externalities to the conflict at hand. Striking a balance here becomes difficult and is context-dependent. Considering the complex operating and conflict environment both patron and surrogate find themselves in, the agents need to be able to make decisions that are complex and subtle, and we need to be able to trust them enough that we don't have to check up on them constantly. Hence, a degree of autonomy is absolutely necessary to be able to let the surrogate exercise the patron's intent as the delegate sees fit, that is, to allow the surrogate to follow the Western principle of mission command. Yet, as Cristiano Cacci and Bruno Falcone state, quote, the more intelligent and autonomous the agent, able to solve problems, choose between alternatives, think rationally, and plan, the less quickly and passively obedient the agent is. The probability that the situation, solution, or behavior provided does not correspond to what we expect and delegate exactly increases, end quote. Castelfranchi and Falcone define principal-agent relations on the basis of a three-level scale of delegation, weak, mild, and strict. All three levels correlate loosely with the three forms of surrogacy defined in Chapter 3. Weak delegation refers to the patron's full exploitation of the surrogate's completely autonomous actions. Here, surrogacy is entirely coincidental. Mild delegation exists when the patron tries to induce a certain behavior with a widely autonomous surrogate, as is the case in indirect surrogacy. Strict delegation refers to direct surrogacy, which is based on an explicit agreement between patron and surrogate. The latter acts as an operational supplement to an already existing operation whereby the patron embeds the surrogate into his command and control system. Obviously, the advantages and disadvantages of these three forms of surrogacy are context-dependent. A patron might choose strict delegation in cases where there is little confidence and trust of the patron toward the agent's ambitions and capabilities. Weak delegation might be more advantageous when a direct or indirect relationship between the patron and the surrogate is impossible because of the complete lack of overlapping interests and objectives. The degree of delegation and consequently agent autonomy has an impact on agent compliance with the patron's strategic guidelines, policies, and doctrine. As patron-surrogate relations, unlike principal-agent relations in a corporate or political environment, are most of the time transactional in nature, the patron can only really influence agent behavior or mission outcome through incentives and coercion with exceptions being cases where patron and surrogate share sectarian, ethnic, or religious identities. In these cases, such as Russia employing Russian-speaking minorities in Crimea or Iran relying on Shia militaries in Syria and Iraq, the patron can achieve high degrees of control through transformational means. Loyalty and trust between patron and surrogate here is governed by non-material, normative incentives. It is questionable, however, whether a socialization and institutionalization process similar to that of the citizen as soldier in the armed forces can be replicated within a patron-surrogate relationship. Norms, values, and behavioral systems are institutionalized over a long period of time through training and education within the regiment and the military organization as extensions of the Trinitarian state-soldier relationship. More often, not, the transformational impact of socio-cultural norms on citizen-soldier behavior cannot be substituted by purely transactional patron-surrogate relations. 
Applied to a corporate context, principal-agent theory usually favors outcome-oriented control mechanisms. However, as Kathleen Eisenhart illustrates, outcome-oriented control mechanisms work only when there is a degree of certainty about the outcome, when principal and agent goals coincide, and when the outcome is somewhat measurable after a relatively short period of time. These conditions do not apply to most postmodern warfare scenarios. Therefore, in surrogate warfare, patrons have to invest in behavior-based control mechanisms that require the patron to develop a direct monitor and control capability. Incentives are provided up front in terms of financial support, training, or military hardware, while the patron embeds its own forces with the surrogate to at least achieve a degree of operational or strategic synergy. Surrogates then operate on a clearly laid out roadmap where its implementation is supervised by the patron. This scenario works particularly well with operational surrogates that are tied to a patron's command and control system through train and equip missions executed by SOF embedded with the surrogate. Nonetheless, even under perfect conditions, the embedded SOF are unable to monitor tactical behavior. Trust is needed that the surrogate might achieve at least strategic outcomes, even if through autonomous operational and tactical execution. For indirect or coincidental strategic surrogacy, however, the absence of an adequate monitoring and supervising mechanism leaves the surrogate with extensive autonomy and the patron with very little means to control surrogate behavior. Hence, when externalizing the burden of warfare to a surrogate, the patron is left with an additional risk. Although the burden of warfare might be minimized, strategic and operational objectives might not be achieved, or, if achieved, only through ineffective, unethical, or illegal means. The surrogate as the agent appears to be in a more comfortable situation. Despite the fact that patron support might come with strings attached, the agent can always retain a degree of autonomy that leaves the patron within a context of information asymmetry. Even the risk of being abandoned by an unreliable patron might be worth the risk considering that patrons in one way or the other engage in positive transactional induction. With little means to control the agent or, co or coerce the agent to follow orders, the patron appears to be in a weaker position than the surrogate. Control and Autonomy in Surrogate Warfare Meaningful control means different things in the context of human surrogates and technological surrogates. In both instances, the issue of control and autonomy has been at the heart of the debate on the ethics and effectiveness of delegation. Social and socio-psychological drivers seem to suggest that human surrogates are more inclined to actively seek autonomy, whereas technological surrogates appear to be easier to control as the active drive to seek autonomy is absent at least as long as AI-driven fully autonomous weapon systems are a thing of the future, as this subchapter will demonstrate. Controlling the Human Surrogate The zero-sum nature of the patron's relationship with the surrogate, namely the one's striving for control is the other's striving for autonomy, generates considerable agency costs. In order to understand these costs for the patron, an understanding of control and warfare is a prerequisite. When autonomy is the freedom from external control, what is control? The definition of this term becomes highly relevant as well when talking about the patron's ethical and legal accountability for surrogate action, as will be discussed in the following chapter. On the strategic level, patrons have few means available to effectively control the surrogate. 
while patrons can potentially use contractual stipulations to control commercial agents, such as PMSCs, contractual arrangements are either absent or not enforceable when patrons are dealing with militia groups or other non-commercial surrogates. Even with contractors, contract enforcement in foreign jurisdictions remains difficult. Withholding or threatening to withdraw support is often the only transactional means at the patron's disposal to induce desired surrogate behavior when dealing with non-commercial agents. Thus, in cases of indirect strategic surrogacy, the patron is left with few means to shape the surrogate's campaign beyond the agreement of strategic objectives. Operational and behavior remain widely autonomous. Only in cases of direct operational surrogacy, whereby patron SOF embedded with the surrogate, can surrogate behavior be shaped on the operational and occasionally tactical level. Here, the legal definition of effective control could be the starting point for defining operational and tactical control in warfare. According to Article 28A of the Rome Statute setting up by the International Criminal Court, ICC, a military commander, quote, shall be held criminally, criminally responsible for crimes within the jurisdiction of the court committed by forces under his or her effective command and control, or effective authority and control, as the case may be, as a result of his or her failure to exercise control over such forces, end quote. Looking at the term effective control, the ICC does not limit control authority to the actual integration of the executive agent, in this case the surrogate, into the command and control system of the military in order to grant a commander effective control. Instead, effective control refers to a commandant's de jour and de facto ability to transactionally induce subordinate behavior. The important factor in this regard is an effective enforcement mechanism holding surrogate troops accountable for deviating from the patient's preferred operational course of action, a mechanism almost impossible to replicate beyond a military or corporate chain of command. The surrogate, by definition, remains an external agent outside the patron's chain of command. PMSCs might possibly be the only surrogates that are internally trying to replicate a hierarchical chain of command and enforcement mechanism, at least those registered in the Western world. Although transformational influence does not establish an effective control relationship in legal terms, influence as a result of personality and not military status, nonetheless, can allow the patron to exercise degrees of control over the surrogate on the operational and tactical level. That is to say, with the patron's SOF embedded in the surrogate force, potentially executing a train-and-equip mission, the patron has degrees of operational and tactical control that exceed strategic threats to withdraw or withhold support. In the case of the U.S. support for SDF and Kurdish People's Protection Units, YPG, forces in northern Syria against ISIS, the SOF liaison team coordinates supplies has the ability to direct CAS, and provides operational planning support to the surrogate. In this case, SOF teams have a considerable operational and tactical leverage over the surrogates, even directing their movements. Yet, the patron-surrogate relationship remains a voluntary one, with the SOF team on the ground having little means to punish wrongdoing or incentivize appropriate behavior beyond the influence of personality. Hence, regardless of the proximity of the relationship between patron and surrogate, the surrogate inevitably retains a high degree of flexibility and autonomy from effective patron control. Further effective control over the surrogate is always dependent on surrogate type. Is it a state or non-state actor? Is it a unitary actor or diverse actor? 
Is it hierarchically organized, or does it display web-like command structures? Particularly when externalizing the burden of warfare to non-state actors, patrons need to be wary that militias, insurgent or terrorist groups might not have a clear command and control system. Ariel Aram distinguishes between U- and M-shaped chains of command in military groups. The former are hierarchically structured based on specialization and clearly defined command roles. The latter are more web-like command structures, built around a number of territorially specific and self-contained units. Evidently, M-shaped command structures are far more difficult to control and to hold accountable, as there are dynamics of devolution at play. Patrons will find it hard to identify decision-makers who could exercise control over operations on behalf of the patron, difficulties that NATO troops encountered in Kosovo after 1999. As Tim Judah writes about in the Kosovo Liberation Army, quote, While there was a rudimentary general staff headquarters, there was not one supreme commander giving orders. Of those that were issued, some were obeyed, some were ignored, and some groups calling themselves KLA— because that's what everyone else w was doing, were really village groups knitted together by clan connections and fear. Everyone knew the local commander, but few knew the leader at the next level up and were unwilling to listen to orders from those they didn't know. End quote. While Islamist and jihadist groups in the Middle East that operate locally as insurgent groups are hierarchically structured entities with a clear command and control system, jihadist outfits that operate as global insurgency organizations with local terrorist franchises are internally divided transnational organizations. They are difficult to infiltrate and promise to be highly unreliable partners for patrons. By definition, terrorist organizations, even when looking for state sponsorship, hold a strong mistrust of state organizations. Jihadist groups in particular value autonomy highly. Degrees of control over terrorist organizations, even when they are dependent on state sponsorship, can vary. Few terrorist organizations remain controllable owing to their network-centric setup. Over time, even pseudo-independent state-controlled or terrorist organizations, of which in the 21st century fewer and fewer remain, develop a life of their own, with ideological factors playing an increasing role. These organizations tend to diversify their sponsorship so as not to be reliable on only a single source. A genuine buy-in into the surrogate's ideological doctrine becomes a factor that plays a more important role for the surrogate than for the patron, who tends to fund the surrogate for political or operational, not ideological, reasons. The final chapter of this book highlights the importance of ideology as a transformational means of control based on the case of Iran and its deputies across the region. Finally, using non-state actors as surrogates creates a problem with the interoperability between the unprofessional, often ideologically motivated volunteer force of the surrogate and the professional forces of the patron. The lack of genuine institutional socialization with the state military and the lack of doctrine and logistical expertise leave the surrogate ill-prepared for an effective cooperation with the institutions of a state organization. This is another reason for patrons to embed liaison officers in the surrogate force. Their expertise and training can help prepare surrogates for semi-autonomous operations. However, that does not necessarily make the surrogate more controllable. The SDF units that were built by the U.S. around the YPG are a case in point. 
while the U.S. has embedded SOF in the SDF units to enable strategic direction and effective liaison with U.S. Central Command, the SDF is a militia that remains hard to control. It is the voluntary nature of patron-surrogate relations that ultimately grant the surrogate the freedom to strive for autonomy. The fact that principal and agent do not necessarily share common values and strategic objectives means that often motivations and intentions on both sides are different, at times even opposed. Although short-term objectives might overlap, the nature of patron-surrogate relations bear the risk that in the long run, these marriages of convenience lose their attraction. Even when patron and surrogate have similar agendas in the beginning, there is a chance that with the conflict evolving, both sides will develop separate agendas. The lack Effective control on the side of the patron means that the relationship beyond transactional incentives is solely governed by trust. Given that of size, power leverage, and ideology, the patron and his delegate might be highly dissimilar. Reliability and trust are variables that are hard to define within a strategic and operational environment of uncertainty. If loyalty is purely founded on material transactions, it will be bought by the highest bidder. The pool of non-state surrogates in a conflict tends to be limited, whereas potential patrons might be more readily available, patrons that are desperately seeking ways and means to externalize the burden of conflict. Surrogate warfare often creates supplier's markets, that is, a situation whereby a whole host of potential patrons are looking for surrogates who would allow them to shape conflict without incurring the costs of war. Under such circumstances, surrogates have a variety of sponsors to choose from, lowering the conditionality with which patrons offer support or assistance. This in turn decreases the levels of control the patron can exercise over the surrogate, as the latter will feel less coerced or pressured by the patron's threat to withdraw support. Knowing that the surrogate might have other options, patrons who are eager to secure means to externalize the burden of warfare become dependent on the surrogate, the dependency the surrogate might not have. Throughout the Assyrian civil war, external powers were looking for means to shape events on the ground without getting directly drawn into the conflict. Initially, few surrogate forces existed who could choose from a range of patrons. Opposition groups had potential sponsors in the U.S., Europe, and the Arab nations in the Persian Gulf, knowing that if one sponsor withdrew its support, others might be willing to step in. This reality made it particularly difficult for patrons willing to support the opposition to exercise transactional control. The Gulf states, most notably Saudi Arabia and Qatar, were, unlike Western states, able to influence surrogate forces with a mix of transactional and transformational engagement. Religious, ideological, and socio-cultural ties allowed for the Gulf states to play a more transformational role. Since the 20th century, Western states have had a particular difficulty achieving control over their surrogates through transformational means. Owing to the fact that Western states tend to rely on surrogates with whom they have little in common in terms of ethnicity, religion, or other sectarian identities, Western patrons, unlike Iran, Russia, or Africa, patrons had only transactional means at their disposal to achieve loyalty and trust. While states such as Uganda or Rwanda have mobilized rebel groups with whom they share ethnic identities, Western states relied on rebels and secessionist volunteers in Latin America, insurgency groups in the Middle East and Central Asia, and corporate military entities that by definition sell their services in exchange for money. Since Western states, first and foremost the U.S., have protected their power across the globe, they often lack 
human bond with belligerents who are far removed geographically. Looking at U.S. surrogates in Afghanistan after 9-11, surrogate loyalty and patron trust become obvious issues. Northern Alliance achieved the objective of regime change in Kabul, it was unwilling to commit to the U.S. war on al-Qaeda. The tribal leader's loyalty had been bought by CIA operatives with millions of dollars, making tribal loyalty in the Northern Alliance a matter of a transactional cost-benefit analysis. For many tribal leaders, al-Qaeda was not an enemy, and waging war against it was not seen as worth the benefits. Ultimately, Osama bin Laden and his close confidants were able to escape in the mountainous terrain of northern Afghanistan, the surrogate abandoning the patron when the latter was trying to achieve its most critical objective. The money that was paid by U.S. SOF and the CIA to Afghanistan in 2001 and 2002, estimated to be in excess of $70 million in total, allowed Afghan warlords to consolidate their local power, shifting the power balance while fueling the illicit drug trade. Since, in the aftermath of 9-11, money was paid out to surrogates with few or no strings attached, surrogates were able to use funds to primarily further their own agenda. Nonetheless, in surrogate warfare, the control-autonomy dilemma is sometimes a reason for concern for surrogates as well. The fear of losing autonomy over one's own agenda owing to a potential attached conditionality of foreign support, makes surrogates suspicious of potential patrons. Patrons, as foreign agents, are seen as advancing their own strategic interests with little regard to the surrogate's agenda. Also, particularly ideological-motivated surrogates might view the foreign patron as a liability, potentially undermining the surrogate's cause intellectually and ideologically. For Syrian rebel groups since 2011, particularly, uh, particularly those in the Islamist camp, proximity to the U.S. is seen as problematic. Anti-Americanism has been on the rise at least since the Iraq War in 2003. Any support from Washington, even if desperately needed, could be perceived by the local population as becoming a political Sam. An incident in September 2016 illustrates how sensitive patron-surrogate relations can be in Syria. Several U.S. SOF operatives were chased out of a city in northern Syria by rebels allegedly affiliating with the moderate Free Syrian Army. In Syria, the source of foreign assistance has had an impact on the insurgency landscape. Competition over assistance has contributed to a factionalization of the Syrian opposition. While money and equipment from the Gulf states was seen favorably, Western assistance was often not. The relatively unitary opposition front in early 2012 quickly disintegrated over the course of a year. Rebel groups were eager to replace unsatisfying sponsorship from the West with a more proactive sponsorship from Gulf patrons who did not attach conditionality to surrogacy. It has been shown that the public perception of the patron can cause heterogeneous organizations to disintegrate when hardliners choose to abandon the organization. Internal rifts and rivalries can then be abused by other patrons who leave their mark on the conflict, sometimes at the expense of other patrons. Despite minimal agency costs for the surrogate, the control-autonomy dilemma almost predominantly affects the patron. The patron's lack of sufficient monitoring, oversight, and supervision ability allows the surrogate to overcharge, underperform, or abuse patron support with relatively limited consequences. The 
military and security industry has provided the most common human surrogate for Western militaries since the 1990s, and its lack of control, oversight, supervision, and monitoring is a well-documented phenomenon. Despite more than a decade of research into the problems of insufficient control mechanisms of this highly diversified industry, little progress has been made to allow patrons to hold PMSCs accountable for misconduct, mismanagement, or ill performance. In this situation, the contractor is a hired employee of a PMSC as a locally registered enterprise whose indirect relationship with the patron is managed through common law contracts. In the UK, patrons have tried to control the commercial market for force through contract governance rather than regulation, that is, allowing the government as the principal to meticulously prescribe to the agent the terms of service. Nonetheless, the partnership between the public and private sector cannot completely rule out that in complex environments, PMSCs might employ ill-trained, under-equipped, and unfit contractors. The lack of quality control of the industry has been widely criticized since its boom years in the 2000s when tens of thousands of contractors were operating on Western government contracts in Iraq and Afghanistan. The lack Monitoring and oversight meant that companies would subcontract certain functions to locals with no quality, quality assurance. As retired U.S. Marine Corps Colonel Thomas X. Homs writes, quote, This lack of control usually means we may get poorly wired buildings, malfunctioning computer systems, and unfinished projects. However, too often it includes incidents of bullying, abuse, intimidation, and even killing of local civilians, such as the Dine Corps employee who ran a sex ring in the Balkans, or in the September 2007 Blackwater shootings in Nasur Square, Baghdad. End quote. In the U.S., the DoD has only a few subcontractors hired to supervise and monitor the externalization of military and security services to the commercial industry. Most of these subcontractors are merely concerned with for fraud and bribery. None really monitor contractor performance. Contractors operate in distant places, often without a dedicated military supervisor and with blurred chains of command. Their performance as surrogates is not scrutinized. This is also because the recipient of the outsourced service is often not the patron, but locals in the operating theater with no voice to provide feedback. As commercial PMSCs are profit seekers who, when contracted with public patrons, are inclined to distort costs, overcharge, and at times underperform. In the immediate post 9 11 years, the bloated defense budgets of public patrons triggered PMSCs to make their cost estimates what they thought they could get away with. While militia and rebel groups as surrogates might not overcharge the patron, they nonetheless can abuse patron support for their own purposes. Funds and what intended for the achievement of the patron's agenda on the ground are easily diverted to other causes. Most non-state actors, especially those operating without a hierarchical command and control structure, are highly corrupted outfits. Received funds are often used to enrich middlemen and leaders, while few resources trickle down to the fighters. As a consequence, the patron's input in money, training, and hardware might not show on the battlefield. Corruption and wasteful spending are phenomena in surrogate warfare that can be observed in strategic proxy relationships between states as well. U.S. capacity-building efforts in Pakistan, for example, have cost more than $4.5 billion since 2010, much 
military aid lost on corruption-supporting activities the patron did not authorize. In other cases, institutions of the patron on the ground to supervise and monitor surrogate activities are being sucked into corrupt and illicit surrogate activities. Research has shown that particularly U.S. covert warfare using local surrogates has often led to an increase in the production of narcotics in the area of operation. In the cases of Burma in the 1950s, Laos in the 1960s, and Afghanistan in the 80s, the CIA acquiesced to and supported the surrogates' narcotics production and trade. Money earned through the sale of narcotics was then used by the surrogates to supplement funding received by the patron. More serious than wasteful spending and corruption is the potential of a gradual departure of the surrogate from the patron's agenda over time. The longer a conflict persists, the more radical insurgent and rebel movements become in their effort to achieve their own interests and objectives. If the patron is unable to provide the surrogate with sufficient funding to achieve the surrogate's own objectives in the short and medium term, the patron and its agenda might lose credibility, calling for a more radical approach. This has been the case more recently in the Syrian civil war, in which the opposition has disintegrated and radicalized. Amid mounting pressure and insufficient and indecisive backing from the international community, the jihadist groups such as Jabhat al-Nusra, since 2016 called Jabhat Fatal al-Sham, and since 2017 called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, can partially be explained by the unwillingness of the Obama administration to step up its support for local surrogates. New funding streams from sources in the Persian Gulf with ideological links to Islamist and jihadist organizations caused a realignment of many smaller groups that felt that an ideological rebranding might potentially increase their survivability vis-a-vis the Syrian regime and other Islamist or jihadist rebel outfits. A similar dynamic can be observed with other ideological actors, particularly those in the extreme jihadist camp. They are looking for new autonomous sources of funding outside of the relationship to the principal patron. One such actor is Lakshar Taiba, L.E.T., one of Asia's greatest terrorist organizations. Founded in Afghanistan in 1987 and headquartered in Pakistan, it quickly became a surrogate for the Pakistani Intelligence Service, Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI. L.E.T. developed into Pakistan's main vehicle to exercise influence over Kashmir. Over time, however, new funding streams opened up, tying the organization closer to jihadist networks around the world. L.E.T. became more rapid, cooperating with al-Qaeda and other jihadist terrorist organizations and developing into a de facto surrogate for Islamist extremism in South Africa. As Gurmeet Kanwal observes, quote, The civilian rulers of Pakistan have already gone too far with the latitude given to the ISI and the Pakistani army to wage a war, a proxy war against India, and are now unable to control, control the Frankenstein monster. End quote. The same observation could be made about the U.S. support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan throughout the 1980s. Local groups of Islamist resistance and freedom fighters developed increasingly into a loose transactional organization of ideologically motivated extremists that, after the withdrawal of the Soviet Union in 1989, laid the intellectual and logistical foundation for global jihad. Some surrogate operations might develop into terrorist outfits, others develop into groups that abuse acquired power for criminal activities. Some criminal organizations are even being purposefully used by patrons as surrogate force multipliers against domestic enemies.
apart from committing war crimes, something that will be discussed in more detail in the following chapter, surrogates may explore their autonomy often in ungoverned spaces to engage in illicit trade of narcotics, arms, humans, and local resources. For example, the cross-border activities of the surrogate forces employed by Uganda and Rwanda in the Second Congo War from 1998 to 2002, the MLC and the RCD, respectively, were most decisively shaped by greed. The exploitation of rare minerals in the eastern Congo was a lucrative way to secure alternative funding streams as means to become more independent from their primary patrons. As the patron had no means to monitor how the surrogate uses the arms and the money delivered, non-state actors employed as surrogates have a tendency to develop into local warlords exercising socio-political control over territories and people. Depending on the degree of external support, Syrian opposition groups have been able to use money and weapons since 2011 to create socio-political entities on the local level, level that are often governed by military councils that, more often than not, further their own interests at the expense of the well-being of the local population. Illicit and criminal activities generate money, influence, and ultimately socio-political power that in the hands of non-state surrogates undermines government authority and sovereignty. But on the political level, the consequences of the surrogates' abuse of autonomy fueled by patron support can have a strategic impact. State actors with the resources to increase their power locally means that surrogates will inevitably undermine state centrism. In the conflicts in the Middle East since the Arab Spring of 2011, the employment of surrogates by the West, Iran, Russia, and the Gulf states has contributed to the decay of territorial integrity and sovereignty of Libya, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, just to name a few. Particularly, the support of sectarian surrogates has created scenarios whereby rebel and militia groups today are unwilling to work toward an inclusive, socio-political solution. Hence, in the long run, surrogate warfare, although providing the patron with an effective, cost-efficient alternative in the short run, might defeat the strategic interests of those patrons genuinely interested in regional security and stability. First, surrogates become quasi-entities in which financial autonomy leads eventually to political autonomy in ungoverned spaces where central governments lack the means and funds to exercise their authority. In the post-Arab Spring environment in the Middle East, local militias have created their own courts, public offices, administrative apparatuses, and pseudo-political institutions. With their socio-political power and status come expectations about their future role in a post-conflict environment, particularly when war economies are more lucrative than peacetime stability. In Afghanistan in 1989, after the Russian withdrawal, the Mujahideen had developed into powerful local players who could no longer be controlled by the institutions of the state. On the contrary, they were controlling the state's security sector locally. Would be, would be absorbed by financially more robust and operationally more effective groups. Second, surrogate warfare, particularly train and equip missions for operational surrogates, lead to the armament of large parts of a war-torn society. Unable to control the flux of small arms, molder, mortars, or shoulder-launched missiles once delivered to the surrogate, patrons indirectly fuel conflicts by making arms readily available that could potentially be resold or proliferated by the surrogate without the authorization of the patron. In Yemen, the coalition, most notably the UAE, has invested in the training and equipment of tribes in the southern and eastern provinces of the country. 
while this surrogate force is supposed, among other things, to bring the fight to jihadist extremists, it is a complex tribal operating environment vetting traders ensuring that weapons provided are not being proliferated to extremists. This is an ambitious task, particularly when considering that organizations such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS are operating across tribal boundaries. In general, the transnational nature of neo-Trinitarian conflict facilitates the proliferation of arms, equipment, funds, and ideology. With arms and money freely floating to neighboring countries, surrogates are able to export conflicts abroad, as has been the case in the Syrian civil war. The transnational reach of surrogates from the Syrian opposition and Hezbollah has led to an escalation of violence in neighboring Lebanon. Moreover, the increased availability of arms in war-torn countries creates a strategic problem in stabilization and post-conflict reconstruction operations. An effective demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration process becomes almost impossible when the populace is polarized and armed. Third, while surrogate warfare can provide operational military solutions to conflicts, it can potentially undermine strategic political processes. The particular sectarian groups and militias in complex civil war-like scenarios leads to the enfranchisement of exclusive stakeholders who, by making considerable sacrifices for potentially powerful external patrons, become indispensable. These optionally indispensable partners put pressure on the patron to play a role in the post-conflict stabilization and nation-building process. In polarized conflicts, the patron's externalization of the burden of warfare to a single party to the conflict can potentially preclude an inclusive political process, as the example of Libya shows. When ISIS was on the rise in Libya in November 2014, France and the UK were looking for a potent partner that could be trained and equipped to fight the jihadists. General Khalifa Haftar's self-proclaimed Libyan National Army, LNA, was identified as a capable surrogate to contain the spread of ISIS in the country. Supported by SOF from the UAE and Jordan, French and UK SOF set up a base in eastern Libya to provide operational support to Haftar's troops. While the French and British government supported the political process in support of the UN-backed unity government in Tripoli, the decision of their respective ministries of defense to militarily impact Haftar's LNA as a surrogate undermined this strategic process. The reason is that Haftar refuses to recognize the unity government. The operational reliance on Haftar in the fight against ISIS makes him a military partner but a political opponent, undermining an inclusive political situation in Libya. Having absorbed much of the Western burden of warfare in Libya, Haftar will insist on a disproportionate share in the process to rebuild Libya, something that will render a comprehensive inclusive political process impossible in the meantime. Controlling the Technological Surrogate the issue of autonomy and control is a common feature in the debate about technological surrogates as well, and maybe even more so with the potential rise of AWS. While, as the previous chapter illustrates, technology has always been a force multiplier throughout history, it is only in the 20th century that technological advances have enabled the development of increasing numbers of standalone platforms with varying degrees of automation, not just supporting the infantryman on the battlefield, but often replacing him or her. Since the V-1 flying bomb developed by Nazi Germany in World War II, technological platforms used in war have increasing 
of automation, with some now exhibiting or close to acquiring autonomous characteristics, which allow them to change behaviors without human input in response to events that are unforeseen. The three levels of delegation discussed earlier in reference to the human surrogate might still apply to autonomous weapons as technological surrogates. For the sake of our discussion in this chapter, we will limit our focus on the command and control relationship between the patron, that is the human, and the machine. Most precision-guided musicians and cruise missiles are operated with a relatively weak form of delegation. More complex systems, such as Israel's Iron Dome, which can autonomously acquire and destroy incoming missiles, are operated with a milder form of delegation. Yet it is the strong form of delegation from the patron to the technological surrogate in AWS that this section focuses on, because these will very likely determine the future of surrogate warfare. It is worth noting that it is also useful to keep in mind the type of functions that are made autonomous within a system, as not all autonomous subfunctions will have the same consequences for the patron-technological surrogate relationship. In regard to robotics and unmanned platforms as lethal AWS, the degree of autonomy is generally defined on the human-in-the-loop test, which determines to what degree the weapon system can act outside of human control. This three-tier categorization differentiates between in-the-loop, on-the-loop, and out-of-the-loop, depending on how deeply the human operator, namely the patron, exercises control over the platform's decision-making processes. So far, the autonomy of weapon systems employed in combat has been mostly limited to in-the-loop platforms, where robots such as drones target and deliver force under human direction. On-the-loop platforms, where the robot can select targets and deliver force under the oversight of the patron's command, are in use in a defensive capacity, such as the American-made phalanx systems aboard naval ships and Patriot System and Israel's Iron Dome. These platforms can detect and destroy incoming missiles automatically, but need to be activated, requiring a human operator. Drones employed in combat today as in-the-loop robotics still rely on decision-making process that is entirely reliant on human judgment. Consequently, the, pro the responsibility for human death caused by drones lies with the drone operator in the chain of command. The fact that both the patron's chain of command and the operator are geographically removed from the area of operation absolves neither the operator nor his superiors of legal and moral responsibilities. The reason that that is that despite the fact that in present operational weapon systems algorithms facilitate the entire cycle of the kill chain of intelligence gathering, surveillance, target acquisition, and target engagement, the human retains meaningful control of the platform. The concept of meaningful human control applied to lethal autonomous weapon systems, or LWAS, is indeed one of the only consensuses reached in the UN Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, UNCCW, the conference so far. States seem to agree that it would be unacceptable to have no human involvement in the decision to use lethal force, be it on the selection or the engagement of the targets. The concrete application of the principle, however, entails both conceptual and practical problems. Humans perform three kinds of roles with respect to target selection and engagement. They act as essential operator by operating the weapons. They act as moral agents, providing value-based judgments. And they act as fail-safe in case of changing conditions that make the engagement no longer appropriate. Improvements in machine intelligence will probably be able to substitute the operator function. However, value-based moral decisions and the fail-safe function will be more difficult to substitute. 
This is because two functions involve the highest risks of human life and require not only rule-based but also cognitive reasoning in the form of knowledge-based behaviors and professional expertise based on judgment, intuition, and situational awareness. When it comes to surrogate warfare by machine, meaningful human control requires the existence of a process to ensure that operators and commanders are held legally and morally accountable for any effect delivered by the technological surrogate in accordance with the Law of Armed Conflict, LOAC. That is to say, for the establishment of meaningful human control, the human needs to be within the wider loop of decision-making so that he can be prosecuted for the effects delivered under his command and direction by the technological surrogate. However, recent examples of in-the-loop systems relying on algorithms for filtering information raise the issue of the role of human agency. The U.S. Air Force, for instance, with the support of Google, introduced in April 2017 an algorithm to automate the identification of objects from video feeds. Project Maven started with video footage of small tax drones such as the Scan Eagle, but the goal is to equip larger operational drones such as the Predator and Reaper. Just a year after its launch due to rapid success, the Maven algorithm has been used in half a dozen locations in the Middle East and Africa. Once mounted onto a combat drone, and the algorithm has been given a wider spectrum of identification, currently the algorithm provides only about 80% input, the human operator's decision to kill would be entirely on the basis of the identification inputs provided by the algorithm. The human in the loop would trust the algorithm to make decisions flawlessly. Yet, in June of 2018, due to pressures from its employees to not develop military applications, Google announced that it would not renew its contract with the U.S. DoD due to expire in 2019. Even more demanding assumptions relate to out-of-the-loop platforms that require sophisticated algorithms to make the highly morally weighted decisions of proportionality, distinction, and military necessary military necessity on behalf human operator and without his ability to overwrite them. As mentioned in the previous chapter, some weapons, such as the British dual-mode brimstone-guided missile and the Israeli harpy loitering weapon, exhibit some characteristics of such out-of-the-loop platforms. These weapons open a Pandora's box of increasingly autonomous weapon systems that can kill. While AI and robotics are primarily developed by and used in the private sector, these technologies find their way into the military realm. As driverless cars are being tested, undemanned aerial, ground, and maritime vehicles are being developed that do not merely launch and land autonomously, but potentially assume increased control over the human monopoly on judgment and decision-making. By, by allowing for the externalizing of the burden of warfare to the machine, these potential technological surrogates enable patrons to externalize the moral and legal judgment of when and how to use force to AI, algorithms that already today can emulate and outperform human analytical, maybe in the future cognitive, processes in specific narrow fields in both quality and quantity of processes over time. The argument goes that rapid assessments can be made faster and more accurately, possibly even more cost-effectively, by the algorithm than by the human brain. Not even by emotion, and thus considered to be more rational, these AWS would be more resilient in case of battle-related stress than the human soldier they intend to replace. Nonetheless, the lack 
motions might not necessarily be an argument in favor of AWS, as it is this very human attribute that often leads to to restraint and respect for human life. Therefore, some, such as Bradley J. Strasser and Wendell Wallach, argue that without a human consciousness and emotions, autonomous platforms should not be entrusted with the responsibility to decide about human life or death, even if the platform decision-making becomes more autonomous. Instead, the human patron should maintain effective control of the technological surrogate by integrating AWS into the chains of command under the direction and instruction of a commander who by exercising direct oversight, retains moral and legal responsibility for the act of LAWS. Similar to human surrogates, the technological surrogate autonomy in theory would need to be curtailed by providing the patron's commander with the tools to exercise effective control over the technological surrogate. This is where the paradox lies, as the return of the patron's control would defeat the purpose of the fully autonomous weapons, which is to be autonomous. Analogous to subordinate soldiers in the chain of command, the technological surrogate operates under the command responsibility of the superior patron commander, who should be able to effectively prevent the autonomous weapon system from committing violations of the LOAC. Patron control, then, has to be effective to the extent that the speed of the AI decision-making does not outperform the commander's ability to overwrite these decisions. In essence, this would render out-of-the-loop platforms incompatible with effective patron control, limiting the range of technological surrogates to semi- or supervised AWS where the human remains either in or on the loop. Control and autonomy are equally important in cyber weapons. Viruses, worms, and other malware engineered to be launched against specific strategic, operational, or technical targets are the 21st century's version of a fire-and-forget weapon, achieving disruption not through kinetic violence, but by undermining critical network infrastructure or functions. Yet, contemporary cyber platforms more resemble automated weapon systems than autonomous ones. Cyber weapons, such as Stuxnet, are non-recallable malware in which various courses of action have been pre-coded, thereby making them analogous to a homing missile. However, looking forward, automated weapons, cyber weapons, notably through the use of deep neural networks like DeepLocker, will increasingly become more autonomous. For Mike Walker, program manager in charge of the Cyber Grand Challenge of the DoD's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, quote, True autonomy in the cyber domain are systems that can create their own knowledge, end quote. During DARPA's competition in 2016, automated cyber tools for the first time autonomously developed patterns, namely programming updates that could have disruptive effects against bug fixes exploiting cyber vulnerabilities in the era of network-centric warfare and the Internet of Things. The appeal of cyber warfare employing malware as a technological surrogate lies in the anonymity of the internet, whereby innocent systems can be utilized as hosts for malicious cyber activities, making it impossible to conclusively attribute the technological surrogate to the patron. While the cloak of anonymity provides the patron with an advantage of plausible deniability, it also deprives the patron of control over a potentially self-learning and self-replicating malware that assumes a life of its own. Similar to a biological virus, control over the technological surrogate is lost once released. Stuxnet infected over 100,000 hosts in 155 countries as the worm escaped into the wild, 
although collateral damage was only minimal because Stuxnet was designed to infect and destroy only command systems. On the other hand, the April 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack, which exploited an NSA-identified vulnerability whose details were stolen and released by the hacker group The Shadow Broker, spread to more than 150 countries worldwide. Because of its very fast rate of infection, WannaCry was a ransomware that paralyzed large organizations and companies, such as the National Health Service in the UK, Renault in France, and Telefonica in Spain. A month later, the NotPetya wiper malware, which was also allegedly developed by a Russian hacker group known as Sandworm or Telebots, targeted Ukraine with the aim of destroying files and paralyzing the economy. It spread to several countries and infected numerous companies, such as the Dutch delivery firm TNT and the Danish shipping giant Maersk. This attack is estimated to have cost companies more than $1.2 billion. The cases above illustrate that cyber weapons, like biological weapons, can spread, and if not carefully engineered with the intention to minimize collateral damage, could potentially infect and destroy critical infrastructure. This is a key difference from drones and robotic systems, which cannot self-replicate. However, unlike biological viruses, malware for now cannot mutate, as they are static. In the future, however, malware with a complex algorithmic learning ability could become a vector in the form of swarm bots or HiveNet, a self-learning swarm of compromised devices likely to spread to and disrupt civilian and military critical networks, infrastructure, and functions. Evading human control and judgment, the choices made by such technological surrogates would be difficult to anticipate by the, ta- by the patron. As Paul Schar observes, quote, adaptive malware that could rewrite itself to hide and avoid scrutiny at superhuman speed could be incredibly virulent, spreading and mutating like a biological virus without form of human control, end quote. An area in cybersecurity that is controversial but attracts a lot of attention is hack which pertains to responding to a cyber attack by counterattacking. This area is shrouded with, with secrecy and very little information is available. Edward Snowden, in an interview with Wired magazine, alluded to the fact that the NSA's MonsterMind program is building an algorithm that could autonomously retaliate in case of an attack against the U.S. Although it is impossible to confirm that the NSA is building this algorithm, the simple fact that people talk about it means that people think about it. As a matter of fact, Bob Work, former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense and the driving force behind the Pentagon's third offset strategy, acknowledged that, quote, the narrow cases where we will allow the machine to make targeting decisions is in defensive cases. We will allow the machine to make essential decisions, like a cyber counterattack, end quote. Automated hacking back, a true surrogate, would delegate the retaliatory decision to an autonomous system. This is highly problematic, however, because cyber decisions are made in milliseconds, and consequently, automated hacking back could cause a flash cyber war that rapidly spirals out of control. The malware could also become a liability when reverse-engineered and redirected toward patron networks, as was the case with Shamoon, a malware that was inspired by the Stuxnet, Flame, Dooku, and Wiper malware attacks against Iran and the Iran allegedly released against the Saudi Arabian oil company Aramco. Although less disruptive than Stuxnet, 
Samoon showed that codes could be isolated and re-engineered to retaliate. Similar to human surrogates, the technological surrogate, especially in the cyber domain, can be won over through hacking and used by another patron for another purpose. A kill switch, a safety mechanism used to shut off machinery in an emergency, is built into most systems to stop them if they go rogue. For example, the spread of the Wanna Cry ransomware could be stopped by the accidental discovery of a kill switch, a specific URL that WannaCry had to check. However, any software-based kill switch is susceptible to hacking, and thus could generate the same kind of unintended consequences as the hack scenario. Hence, both lethal AWS and non-lethal automated cyber weapons can potentially evade human control, putting the human back the loop might be a noble ambition when designing technological platforms and planning their deployment, but it is one that often fails to account for the realities of network-based systems. First, both UAVs and malware require stable and secured network links to carry the surrogate to the target. Network links can be disrupted, cutting the human operator out of the loop. As illustrated by the case of the US RQ-170 stealth drone, which was intercepted and captured by Iran in 2011, network-based systems are vulnerable to external disruption. Second, the human operator requires the ability to exercise effective control over the technological surrogate whose AI performance most likely exceeds human-level performance. As Sun Tzu observed, speed is the essence of war, but humans cannot compete with machine speed. The human in or on the loop requires the ability to anticipate and understand the technological surrogate's action before it occurs, and the ability to intervene, abilities that are undermined by the processing speed of AI, as well as the complexity of its decision-making. Since AI has been introduced in stock trading, human traders have consistently been outperformed by high-frequency trading algorithms because the latter decide at one one-thousandth of a second compared to a human trader who requires at best half a second for a decision. Moreover, flash crashes illustrate the fact that a machine can have a logic of its own, based on probabilistic reasoning that evades human understanding. Although kill switches are used to stop flash crashes, there is no equivalent in war. As a consequence, the technological surrogate will, in the long run, develop into an ever more intelligent platform that could exhibit man-made interactions, such as brain-computer interfaces, before reaching a point of strong AI. Until AGI is reached, it will not actively be seeking autonomy by itself and be conscious. Although this scenario might be a distant future, in the meantime, however, the technological surrogate will be equipped with the necessary autonomy so as to be able to make complex decisions and judgments remotely. The risk of unexpected or unintended harmful action committed by AWS appears to be real, in particular, whenever more platforms are being deployed without human operators. This is the concern and motivation behind the global Campaign to Stop Killer Robots launched in April of 2013. The concern over such weapon systems being developed in the shadows of public attention has also affected state agendas, as the debates within the framework of the UNCCW conference have highlighted since 2014. With a multiplied command responsibility and limited cognitive and technological means to overwrite the decision-making of LAWS, autonomous robotic systems and cyber weapons can develop into rogue platforms, potentially generating destructive effects on the strategic level. Recent research in adversarial AI have demonstrated by 
that by manipulating only a few pixels in a picture, the algorithm can completely change its interpretation of the picture and classify it in a completely different category, while the human eye might not notice such a change. The most worrying aspect here is that such changes unperceivable by humans have universal applications and similar effects across all algorithms. Although AI currently outcompete human beings in very narrow and specific fields, it can also be fooled very easily, as the example above demonstrates. This offers worrying prospects where weapons relying on AI might crash or go wrong. It follows that a single effect delivered autonomously by a UAV or a malware against the commander's intention could undermine the strategic objectives of an entire operation. A rogue autonomous UAV delivering disruptive lethal effects on civilians against the commander's intention could lead to strategic failure in a population-centric operation. A rogue autonomous malware delivering disruptive effects on critical civilian network in a megacity against the commander's intention could have equally extensive consequences for human security in the area. The discussion in this chapter has focused on autonomous technologies currently available that rely on weak AI. However, as AGI is also being researched by some companies, the prospect of it being able to compete in the future with the cognitive abilities of the human brain provides reasons for concern. In the words of Bob Work, quote, If we are relatively certain that there are no friendlies in the area, weapons free, let the weapon decide, because they are still narrow AI systems. The danger is if you get a general AI system and it can rewrite its own code. We will be extremely careful in trying to put general AI into an autonomous weapon, end quote. However, as these moral concerns might not be universally shared, the likelihood of AGI, if it ever materializes, being developed and mounted on weapons platforms will be high. Short of AGI, however, the ease with which current AI technology can proliferate to rogue state and non-state actors should also give real reason for concern. In the words of the IBM researchers who developed DeepLocker, what makes this AI-powered malware particularly dangerous is that, quote, like nation-state malware, it could infect millions of systems without being detected. But unlike nation-state malware, it is feasible in the civilian and commercial realms. End quote. Conclusion The quest for control of what should inherently be an autonomous agent is at the heart of surrogate warfare. The fact that Adrian wants a degree of disassociation from the surrogate's actions in order to maintain plausible deniability and discretion in front of international, domestic, and local audiences means that the patron has commonly has to surrender direct control, especially over the human surrogate. Western concepts of mission command provide a blueprint for how command and control can be maintained, despite the application of authority to subordinates. The difference is that the institutionalization of behavior, norms, and culture over an extended period within a single military organization can generate a unity of effort in the context of what some might describe as earned autonomy for subordinates. Key to effective control by personality in the military context appears to be a level of transformational trust, which enables a bond between patron and surrogate to develop that makes transactional control redundant. In the context of human surrogate war, the transformative nature of patron-surrogate relations based on trust, common values, or ideology might be the most significant ingredient for successful patron control. 
Iran's transformational integration of its human surrogates into its Islamic revolution is a good example here that will be discussed in Chapter 7. On the contrary, a purely transactional patron-surrogate relationship might not generate the levels of control and compliance the patron envisages. In, for in a highly dynamic, strategic, and operational environment, the transactional costs of loyalty are fluctuating, exposing the human surrogate to the transactional power of the highest bidder. In the case of the technological surrogate, the machine cannot demand, at least until AGI is reached, autonomy. Autonomy is currently built in some weapons functions so as to avoid overburdening the human operator. Nonetheless, controlling the technological surrogate is an important part of the debate on the future of AWS. Here again, it is important to find an equilibrium between a degree of control to ensure that the machine complies with strategic, operational, and tactical directives, and a degree of autonomy that enables the machine to perform its missions on the battlefield more accurately and rapidly than humans an equilibrium that will become increasingly hard to set as the growing complexity of artificial intelligence processes makes it more and more difficult for the human to overwrite machine actions before they happen. Ultimately, the trade-off between autonomy and control should be at the core of the debate on the utility of human and technological surrogate warfare. In both instances, the surrender of control to a surrogate who or which might act with more precision, speed, awareness, and knowledge of the context bears the risks of the patron ultimately losing its ability to interfere with what might increasingly become somebody else's war.